You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. It is episode number 175 of Play by Playcast. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download. My name is Joel Godet, and this is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. It's on social media at PXPCast. You can find me at Joel Godet, or shoot me an email, if you will, at JGODETT at bsu.edu. This is an episode I have been looking forward to since we started this podcast for four years. The guest on episode number 175 is someone I've wanted to have on for a very long time. Before we get to him, if you haven't heard last week's episode, when you get a second, go back and check out episode 174 with Krista Blunk. The midweek episode last week was with Mike Moore, producer extraordinaire, Helped launch ESPNU, executive producer, coordinating producer, senior coordinating producer, everything. Phenomenal perspective from him. Uh, Pat Hughes of the Chicago Cubs was the week before that. But the guest on episode 175 this week is Ian Eagle. And Ian Eagle is the reason that I got into sports broadcasting and play-by-play on days when I do a good job. If I if I if I have a bad game, then he and I have never met. Uh, but but when 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 I do well, he is the reason that I got into play by play and broadcasting in general. When I was going into my junior year of high school, I went to the Bruce Beck Iron Eagle Sports Broadcasting Camp at the Yogi Berra Baseball Museum in Montclair, New Jersey, at Montclair State University. It was a week long broadcaster camp, and in that week. I decided this is what I'm doing. Like, I found it. Figured it out. After that, I went and joined the local paper, the county paper, the Hunterdon County Democrat. uh, Wrote for the school paper, Paul Prince, North Hunterdon High School. Uh, And I joined Patriot 8 Media, which was the local public access where I got my first on-air experience when I was in high school as well. Ian went to Syracuse in part because of that, or no no small part because of that, uh, that I, I looked at Syracuse as a college, wound up going there. He has just been a guy that since I was in high school and since I met him, uh, has been kind of a, an icon for me to look up to. And he does a really good job. Like, I don't want to pick exact numbers. Like, don't ask me to pick the other four, but I, I, I would tell you that Ian Eagle is one of the top five broadcasters in the industry right now. It's the way that he punctuates big moments, the way that he yells Joe Johnson. Johnson, the step back! Oh! 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 Joe Johnson! Oh, my goodness! And, you know, they always ask you, who do you model yourself after as a broadcaster? And everyone has their answer, but at the same time, we all say, make sure to be yourself. The person that I would say that I listen to and go, yeah, it would be cool to sound like that 
is Ian Eagle. Like literally last year at one point, player by the name of Bree Kavanaugh at Fordham hit a three and Fordham, I think, had hit 10 threes in the first half of this game I was doing on CBS. And I just yelled out, oh, Bree Kavanaugh. And it like in my mind, like all I was thinking was Joe Johnson. That's what like that's where my mind went. He's great in the huge moments. Fletcher McGee. And what's great about Fletcher McGee, big moment, you knew something big was happening. There's also a little bit of humor in there as well. There's a little bit of levity. Is not human. Like, it's the right thing at the right time. It described the moment perfectly, but it also did it where the person sitting at home is going to smile listening to that. And then, of course, you just get to regular humor outside of calls. Like, he's just a generally funny guy. On the air and off the air. He's the same person in both scenarios. This was him accepting an Emmy on live... Well, not accepting an Emmy. This was him being recognized for an Emmy on on live television. Thank you. Well, this is really now getting very awkward. That's the way you want to touch me. <laughs> really nice. That's really nice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, we have visitors. I didn't even know. Well, that, they're... Amanda, Amanda and Jesse, they're posing for the camp. Okay, we're done, ladies. Thank you, though. You guys are great. Love you. There were cheerleaders behind him, by the way, is what happened at the end of that end of that clip. He's I, he's just, he's great. He's my favorite. Quick backstory on him. We don't dive into a ton of his backstory here. Uh, came from a couple of performers. His mother was an actor. His dad, a comedian. So when you talk about really good performance quality... Maybe a little bit of that is in the blood, learned experience over the course of his young life. But he went to Syracuse, graduated in 1990, began working at WFAN. And he's told this story in many other outlets. You can find it in other podcast interviews or in other other articles. Began working at WFAN in New York in a job that was not on air and was told, don't take this job if you want to be on air. He took the job anyway. And he worked his way up and inevitably, yes. Ian Eagle wound up on the air and wound up the voice of the Nets and the voice of the Jets. And in 1998, he joined CBS, where he's now one of the top voices on their NFL package, NBA on TNT. He has voiced video games. He's been the voice of Models Sporting Goods Store. We'll get to that at the end of the podcast. Um, He also has a list of every partner he's ever worked with and... He has the whole list. Like, I can just read you off what's on Wikipedia. Uh, but it's pretty... It's over 100, I think, his actual list. But Dan Fouts, Solomon Wilcots, Clark Kellogg, Raff, Jim Smarnarkle, Gottlieb, Mike Fratello, Steve Lavin, Grant Hill, Chris Weber, Len Elmore, Trent Green, John Thompson, Mark Jackson, Boomer, Greg Anthony, Mark May, Phil Sims, Kelly Trapuca, Rich Gannon, Richard Jefferson, Lindsey Davenport. How does this not have... Sarah Kustak on it. This is his current Nets partner. Well, you know. Enjoy the next hour with Ian Eagle. To interview you, I feel like I probably didn't need to do a ton of back research just because like there's enough that I'm curious about to ask you of. Uh, but but I googled you just for the sake of it. 
And uh, I like how many interviews have you done over the last two weeks while you've been quarantined? <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, here's the thing, Joel. Uh, this is one of those examples where you definitely can't say no. There's no <laughs> built-in excuse. I, I can't say, oh, I'm traveling that day. Oh, no, I've got a game. Oh, I have another assignment. Uh, people pretty much know that you're around <laughs> and available. So – Yes, uh, I have been. I have been saying yes quite a bit. Uh, what's the family time like? Because you get the whole crew together now for the first time in, in a long time, right? Yeah, it's been a completely unexpected family reunion, and fortunately, we get along. Uh, my wife and I get along. <laughs> Every combination. My son Noah, my daughter Erin. You can pair off or go into threes or into the larger group of four. And everybody gets along. So it's a harmonious house. And it's great. It It's probably the last time we will ever have this extended period of time together in this way, just because of where my kids are in their respective lives and their own responsibilities and big moments coming up. So we're, we're definitely enjoying it. And we understand it is very unique. That and, and and when sports resume, it's probably just going to be like 18 consecutive months. So yeah, yeah. And here's the thing, Joel, and I know you're feeling the same way. I'm okay with that. I'm <laughs> I'm good with that. You could tell me, hey, you've got to go a, a year and a half of just doing sport after sport after sport, and I'm very much open to it. Um, on on uh, on the impression that I'm sure if people have never heard Ian Eagle talk before, um, which if they're listening to this, they, they most certainly have. But if they haven't, um, what they've gotten in the first like 90 seconds of this is is where I wanted to start with you. And that's just um, how long have you been funny? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's put it this way. My dad was a stand-up comedian, yeah. so that's all I knew growing up. And, and it, it's interesting when I look back on it, he wasn't a stand-up comedian in that every waking moment of his life was set up punchline, set up punchline. He had his onstage persona, uh, which was very good. He was terrific. I never saw him bomb in all the years that, that I saw him doing stand-up. But he was also an actor and was in 50-some-odd commercials. He was a big band trumpet player. And he was a renaissance man. So when he wasn't on stage, it wasn't necessarily him being zany and funny all the time. He was very deep. He was very professorial. And he was very philosophical. So I, I ended up getting the best of both worlds. I saw the performance aspect of who he was, but I also saw the depth that he brought as a human being. My mother was an entertainer as well. She was a singer and an actress. And that was a whole different experience. My parents got divorced, so it wasn't the typical upbringing. By the age of 10, my mom was basically living on the West Coast. She would come back to the East Coast occasionally and stay for a stretch of time. But I definitely didn't have that uh, old-fashioned family setup. And I think because of that, it, it forced me to grow up very quickly. I was mature at a young age. I was very independent at a young age. And I think just based on what they did for a living, 
I saw a vehicle in, in being funny and seeing the, the comedy of situations and trying to be positive as a person and optimistic. And, and that's how I viewed life. How does that in a professional sense, uh, how does that translate? And, and was that something you ever had to, to work on to say, like, to, to make sure that that translated, to make sure that it came across and that it, it came across in the right way? Well, what struck me early, Joel, when, when I started getting on the air, I was very young. I got chances at a young age at WFAN Radio in New York, and then with the then New Jersey Nets radio broadcast, I got the TV job one year later, I got the Jets play-by-play job a couple of years after that, and the, the main focus for me was credibility more than anything else because I knew – even from a, a viewer standpoint as myself, that younger broadcasters probably had to work a little bit harder in order to get the audience on their side. So I didn't want this idea that I was coming at it from a humorous angle all the time, and then I could shift gears into the serious mode. I would say I was more of the classic nuts and bolts student of the broadcasting profession early. And then I started to pick my spots and who I had as a partner played a big role in that as well. I had Bill Raftery <laughs> in my first year on television. That makes it easy. One of, yeah. yeah. One of the most entertaining human beings that this world has ever seen on the air, off the air. So that became a, a very easy way to transition into what, I felt was my natural, authentic personality eventually coming through. And then it got to a point where my confidence was high enough that I would incorporate it no matter who my partner was. And even if I got crickets after what I thought was a pretty good line or a, a witty response, I would stick with it. And I had enough conviction to know that it was resonating with somebody out there. Uh, I, I realized also, when I started doing national broadcasts, that I really had to be careful and I had to be hyper aware of my situations. Uh, it wasn't as simple as the local broadcast where the audience had a built in familiarity with you and there was a relationship that had developed over time. On the national broadcasts, the audience didn't care. They didn't want to hear uh, your attempts at humor. So it took longer for me to to ramp up in that category on CBS broadcasts or TNT broadcasts. But now, obviously, enough years have gone by. I think I, I've built enough of a reputation and my persona is such that I feel the liberty to go places that I want to go on broadcast as long as as I have a, a real confidence in what I'm saying. Where does some of it come from? Um, and, I, you know, I, I just think about like Jason Benetti is a guy that I will sit across the table from at dinner and he will say something and then pause and look at me with this wry smile. And I'm like, <laughs> he, he just dropped a song lyric and it went over my head. But like, I know what just happened there. Um, like, and, and that from his standpoint, just like he's read a lot and like he's very worldly and, and has the ability to pull from all those things and use them. For you, where does that wit come from on the fly that way that you're comfortable using it um, in those situations? 
Yeah, I, I'd like to think, Joel, that if you and I went to dinner, I I would be able to regale you with some stories and, and nothing that was predetermined that I thought to myself, uh, I want to get story A, B, and C in before we get the main course. It's the natural flow of conversation. And that's what I always believe in. If I meet somebody for the first time, I try to find commonality. I try to find common ground. And like any new relationship, you see where the boundaries are and you might push in one area, it might pull back in another. And I see a, a broadcast as as the same blank canvas. I can't assume that every person that I work with, every partner that I work with is comfortable going down that road. So my goal as as a partner, broadcast partner, is find what they are comfortable with. Mm. Find the area that you can put them in the best possible light. And you know, my philosophy has always been if the analyst is doing a good job, certainly on the TV side, that means you're probably having a pretty good broadcast. <laughs> uh, because most viewers, when they watch, it's completely uh, subconscious you just think to yourself, wow, I like these two. I like them. Not, oh, I like him. I don't really like him or I like her, but I'm not sure about her. That's not how how your brain works when you're watching a telecast. You either feel comfortable or something is off-putting. And usually the way to make people feel comfortable is good, uh, authentic, real banter, conversation. Uh, that's what people seem to respond to. How intimidating was it to work with Bill Raftery at that age in your career? Well, the benefit for me was uh, having done the radio for a year, I traveled with the team and I got to know Bill. So when I got the TV job the next year, it wasn't that steep a transition for me. Bill and I had already developed a friendship we had shared many meals together. We had shared many, many drinks together. <laughs> Too many. Mostly by him. Yeah, mostly yeah, by him. Yeah. I would say his liver is <laughs> at a Hall of Fame level, and mine is at like a single A level. But the reality was there was already a, a strong dynamic. So other than turning the camera on, and having our commentary beamed out to a television audience, which I'm not even convinced was that large at that point. The Nets were not very good. They went 30 and 52 that year under Butch Beard. It wasn't as if I was getting a whole lot of attention in the marketplace. I almost got the chance to do this in a bit of anonymity because Nobody seemed to care all that much. It wasn't until Jason Kidd came to the Nets where I saw a very stark contrast in the way people started to respond. Even if I went to my local pizza place, things changed. And for a long stretch of time, I was doing the Nets games. And, you know, let's say I, I went in to grab a slice at lunch. And somebody would recognize me and say, hey, you're, you're Ian Eagle. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Ian Eagle. I said, oh, man, I got to tell you, I loved you on FAN. I said, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. They said, what do you do now? <laughs> 
Well, I'm selling insurance and and it's going really well. I feel feel good. I'm hitting my quota every month. Like that was happening a lot. Uh, I'm not I'm not blowing this out of proportion. So for a number of years on the Nets games, it, it was a learning process for me, and I think it made me a much better broadcaster. The team was not that competitive. Bill and I tried to entertain one another, and we realized that we just had a very natural chemistry that. We still share today. We end up doing eight or nine games on CBS every year, and it's like going in the hot tub time machine. It's it's crazy because the first game I ever did with Bill, you have to go back 25 years. So we've been doing this in some form for a quarter of a century, and that just blows my mind. Just don't tell Bill hot tub time machine because he might come dressed for the occasion. John Cusack, who was in that? He would have no idea. I could use that terminology. That was the other thing that I learned. Anything pop culture based went completely over his head. So I, you know, I either had to predate uh, a number of of my my uh, witticisms when it came to uh, anything connected to entertainment. I would have to like throw in "I love Lucy." And then he would react. But if I said anything about Friends or Seinfeld, not so much. How do you entertain? Um, and in those settings, if the game is, you know, if, if the season's out of hand and the game's out of hand, um, it's one way. But even if even if it's a great game, and obviously you're not down to the wire, but first half tight game, um, what is the line that you have to walk and how do you walk it in terms of being entertaining and bringing that extra value while still respecting the product that's in front of you? I am constantly asking myself this question throughout a broadcast. Would this entertain me? I I must ask myself that 50 times. And of course, Joel, as you know, from your experience, you're making split second decisions in what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, how you're going to present a piece of information. And if you're not constantly asking yourself that, at least a little voice in the back of your head, then in my mind, you're, you're not doing your job. Of course, it requires multitasking. And as you well know, your brain is chopped up when you're doing these games. You're listening in one ear to a producer. You're f- focused on what your analyst is saying. You're looking down at your notes and setting up what the next topic may be. Uh, you're also opening up your mind and trying to be in the moment. It's that combination of preparation and performance. The preparation part, anyone listening to this podcast right now is well aware how much prep goes into these games. And to be the best that you can be, uh, that means you've got to be informed. But you also have to present it and you have to perform in a way that gets the information out to the viewer in a digestible form, entertaining and informative. And that's how I've tried to view this for for so many years. Consider who it is you're doing this for. You could say, well, I'm trying to entertain the guy next to me, or I'm trying to make sure my bosses are happy. Yes, all of that is true. But ultimately, you're doing it for the audience. And if what's coming out of your mouth is not for the audience, then you've got to take a step back and think about what it is you're doing and what your objective is. It's always for the audience. 
And the audience is different depending on the situation, too. It's not just a, it is. a blanket audience. It is. And you have to be aware of that. And I think, of course, consistency is such a big part of doing play-by-play and doing it well. Uh, when viewers know what they're going to get with a particular announcer, I think that goes a long way. And that's why you'll see 20, 25, 30-year play-by-play careers, because there is a comfort level that that fans feel with, with certain announcers. But that consistency doesn't come without hard work and continuing to polish your craft and going back and listening to your work, not necessarily combing through it like you did early in your career, but picking some moments over the course of your broadcast season to review and not just the highlights, but how you get into a break and how you get out of a break and how you set up your analyst and how you handle a storyline or how you handle a big moment. All of those things are are a part of evolving as a broadcaster. And that never ends. You're never at a point where this is a finished product. You're always a student of this. And that has to be your mindset if, if you're going to be great at this job. You could be 30 years in. You are judged by your last broadcast. That's how it works. Fair, unfair, it doesn't matter. That's how it works. Even the great ones, when you turn on the television, if they have an off night, people know it and they feel it. doesn't mean that they're automatically turned off of them or that they've changed their whole opinion, but it does does alter your opinion in the moment. Uh, the goal is to be consistently excellent, and that means incredible focus for every assignment. What's something you've learned recently? You know, I'd say recently uh, for me has been listening back to old stuff and realizing how I've developed from a voice point of view of using my voice well, of uh, cutting through in the big moments, but doing it in a way that uh, still blends with the crowd. What I realized, I don't know how many years in, it, it might have taken six, seven, eight years doing NFL of changing and adjusting your presentation based on the home or road team, given the venue. If the road team scores a huge touchdown at the end of the fourth quarter to put the team ahead and there's no crowd behind it, well, you've got to factor that into your call. If there's a huge crowd because it's the home team that just went ahead, you're going to be fighting the crowd and it's going to blend with the ambient noise. So I'd say early in my career, I just would present it in the same way. Big touchdown, same octave level, and I didn't think twice about it. But after years and years of listening back and realizing, well, wait a second, it doesn't sound the same because there's no real crowd to balance it out. I decided I needed to make an adjustment. And it doesn't mean I'm not excited for the road team. It just means that I'm trying to use my voice to the best of my ability and trying to do it in a way that uh, makes it easier for for the viewer to take in and not question. You know, that's that's a part of it as well. You never want to become a distraction to the moment. If a moment happens 
your job, certainly on the TV side, is to complement the moment. Maybe, maybe you can enhance it with your call. And I think there probably have been some times in my career where maybe my call helped make a moment a little bit bigger because I chose the right words. My energy level was also correct. And it was this perfect storm. But most of the time, that's just not the case. The highlight or the moment is the headline. That's the stake. And maybe you can add a little bit of sizzle along the way. How long did that take playing with that? Talking about like end of game or or adjusting to the way the crowd sounds, because I have to imagine that's one of those things where the first time you do it, you weren't pleased. Yeah, I would tell you that I'm still in the process. It, again, it's it's not it's not a finished product for me because you might go in with a certain idea of how it's going to work in a particular arena and then halfway through you realize wow, this crowd is actually livelier than I anticipated mm-hmm. and you might have to push it a bit more when you hit the fourth quarter. It's also, it's an interesting thing, and this is really going deep, deep, deep. It depends on the audio quality in your headset. And as we know, when you bounce around from site to site and it's different crews and a different audio guy in the truck, different audio guy at the table, uh, that can adjust how you hear yourself. And it could adjust how you're being heard as well. If somebody in that position is pushing the crowd mics and the parabolic microphones and you're hearing more of the squeak in a basketball game or more of the ball hitting the rim or in a football game, you're hearing uh, the, the pad smacking on a tackle and it's overpowering your voice or vice versa. If it sounds like you're broadcasting out of a morgue, That's a problem as well with no crowd and nothing there to balance you out. So there's that that one part of the equation that's the unknown. And oftentimes you don't know about it until you watch your stuff back. And I'm sure there have been moments, Joel, where you felt really good about a particular broadcast. (laughs) And then you go back and you watch, you go, wow, you you can't even hear me. And there might have been other times where you thought to yourself, hmm. I'm not sure that was my best. And then you look back and watch uh, on DVR or on a link and you say, wow, no, that was a really good mix. I sound, I sound full. I, I, I sound like I'm, I'm in command here. So that can play some tricks on your, your brain as well. Every broadcaster, every broadcaster has experienced that. Yeah, I can give you the answer to uh, to both of those questions actually <laughs> as, a, as I'm thinking about it. Um of the uh, of the things you have done over the last couple of weeks, uh, one of them was a a Zoom call that I was uh, that I eavesdropped in on last week. Um and one of the things that you talked about was breaking down telling the story of the game. And one of the things you said that was interesting to me was that um it's easy to get lost in the nitty-gritty and miss the big picture. And I have several times gotten home from a broadcast and said to myself, yeah, it was good, but I feel like I missed this piece of it. Or I feel like I didn't do this part of a team justice or this piece of a story justice. Mm -hmm. What are the ways that you track that in game and try to keep yourself centered on what the true story is? 
Well, the hope is that there are checks and balances on a TV broadcast. It's not all on you. And if you're working with a really good producer and you have a good game plan going in, oftentimes you can complement one another. And if you're working with a partner that you're comfortable with, uh, even in commercial breaks, it, it requires 10 to 15 seconds of your time to look at one another and just say, hey, are we missing anything here? Anything you want to cover? That's a quick little check-in. And oftentimes the answer is, no, I think we're good. But maybe occasionally uh, something pops up in that moment that uh, alerts you to a storyline that you just have neglected. Another part is going in with an idea of some things that you'd like to cover. And it doesn't mean that it's predetermined out of the second commercial break, we're doing this. I know some producers do that and that's fine. They follow a format and that works. To me, the best producers and the best announcers are the ones that flow with the game, that feel the ebb and flow of a game. And that takes time. That That's not something that you conquer in your first or second or third year. More than anything else, I think part of it for me has been this, this fear that at the end of a game, I'll get in my car or we'll head to the airport or after I land or the next morning on a Monday after an NFL Sunday. I'll start reading up on the game that I just did just as a little review and three things pop up that we were not on top of, whether it was something statistical, a record, uh, whether it was a storyline of a player that uh, wasn't supposed to be part of it, but was or vice versa, a player that was supposed to play a big role and didn't, but we just weren't on top of it. Or if it's something sometimes random that your research could have prepared you for, but you just missed it, that will trouble me. That will keep me up at night. And I think that fear has motivated me to make sure that doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that every single broadcast, you feel like you covered every possible angle, but boy, I make it my business to know what are the most important themes of this game? And don't get caught up in the minutia when there are some obvious things happening in front of you. This year, Kyrie Irving with the Nets, there were just games where he was magical. And sometimes you can get caught up in a little bit of the call itself or a sp specific way you describe something. And somewhere along the line with him, I realized, no, 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 no. Just match the energy and let it flow naturally. I don't have pre-canned lines of what you're going to use. If you feel as one with the action, then the words will come to you. And with him, he was putting a year's worth of highlights into 20 games is what he ended up playing for the Nets. But his highlights would lead you to believe that he played for all 82. <laughs> uh, it was just that kind of dynamic with him. And I had to remind myself every time that he played, be ready for anything. And it was just a little slight reminder. Nobody else said it to me. It was just to myself before these games that this guy has a chance to do something that you maybe have never seen before. 
Well, I think I think I got this from you. Um, if I didn't, correct me. Um, but one of the things I started doing in an effort to kind of track something like this is like I would put. I have two note cards, and I put the five bullet points of here are five things about this team and about this game and about this story that I want to make sure I track and that I want to keep my eye on as we go through the course of a game and not lose in the big picture, um, just to try to keep myself focused. Yeah, you very well could have gotten it for me. It is something that I do, and I have a note card that I have with me for the entire game that I'm not looking at per se – during action, but in commercial breaks, I'm trying to use that time in a productive manner. Of course, you have to rest your brain, and sometimes you just have to rest your voice. But it doesn't mean that you should completely disengage with what's happening. If anything, I've learned that that's a good time to regroup. That's a good time to look down at your notes and and make some mental checks are we dealing with this correctly? Are we covering this? Am I all over this? Have I done enough of this? Have I done too much of one thing? Mm. And uh, I think that's really important, certainly for young broadcasters to remind themselves. It's interesting, uh, Joel, you now have gotten a, a lot of TV experience the last couple of years. And oftentimes I find the production meetings that you may have you know, on larger productions, you might have it the night before with a large group. On smaller productions, you might have it over the phone, via email. You might do it in person two hours before the game. Just talk through what you want to do. And the open ends up being the part that takes up the most time. <laughs> and Definitely. The irony of that, Joel, is that it actually takes up the least time on your broadcast. It's usually a minute and a half or two minutes and then you're off and running and you're doing the game, but you focused all of the production meeting on <laughs> this two minute open. Yeah. And a lot of the time, all of whatever you covered is forgotten. You never even go back to it. You never mention it again. So I really make a conscious effort to go back in my mind with the open. What did we lay out at the top of the show? What did we tell viewers to look for? And is it something that we can revisit in the game? Even if you don't refer to it as, hey, as we told you at the top of the show, A, B, and C, you can subtly bring it back in some way. And to me, that's that's just bringing everything back home to what you thought beforehand could be important. And by the way, you can admit if it wasn't. If Well, we thought this, but this is what actually has happened. And I think viewers are okay with that. Something else that you brought up on that Zoom, um, which I thought was interesting in, its, in, in, in the amount of detail that it took, was you said, listen to the, how the great ones come back from break and how quickly they get to the point. And number one, like couldn't agree with you more, but number two, like the, the minutia that's involved in that thought struck me. Um, so number one, uh, why is that important? I'm going to get killed for asking a double-barreled question here. Um, but, <laughs> but why is that important? And what are other things of that level, like that type of minutia that stick in your mind that the average person or, or maybe the up-and-coming broadcaster wouldn't think about? Well, I think when you prepare for a broadcast, you often get 
caught up in uh, the things that are obvious, and rightfully so. You've got to know names. You've got to know numbers. You've got to know background. You've got to know age or what year they are in school or what hometown or what major they have. All of that is understood. Anyone that does this for a living knows, okay, those are uh, rudimentary parts of the preparation process. Then, to me, what I learned over time was, okay, I've been to Pittsburgh a million times. Every time we come back from break, am I going to say, welcome back to Heinz Field? Or (laughs) is there some other way to say that? Is there some other way to welcome back the audience? In Baltimore, same deal. I can't tell you how many games in my 23 years at CBS have I been at Baltimore. And yes, maybe the name of the stadium has changed, but there are certain things that you can jot down that you might use over the course of a broadcast coming back from break. Uh, M&T Bank Stadium opened in September of 1998. Uh, Charm City, uh, the fact that there's purple pride in Baltimore, or uh, I think there was a game where it was raining in Baltimore, and I might have called it purple rain. Uh, something to just change up the vernacular and to remind viewers that you've gone a little bit above the obvious and you've taken the time. And that's part of what I mean when I say listen to how the great ones come back from break or go to break? Uh, Do they make it feel seamless? Uh, Do they do it in a way that's conversational? And maybe you learn something and you didn't even realize it. Just a quick little quip. Mike Tirico has been brilliant at this. And I've noticed with him, uh, he'll just pick up on things that any other broadcaster could do but he just made sure to do it a little bit better. And I think it it pushed me to maybe focus on that a bit more, the little things, knowing the name of the athletic trainer for a team, not just saying that a player is getting medical attention, but if uh, the Golden State Warriors have an injury and their athletic trainer, Drew Yoder, comes out, you have the name. It didn't take all that long to look it up and to put it on your board, but it just shows a next level type of commitment to the craft. And I think that's important. If you want to be the best version of who you can be as a broadcaster, that means you've got to go and look beyond the obvious. I just went to the roster real quick. They don't have their athletic trainer listed, so I was disappointed. I was going to call you out if it's not Drew Yoder. <laughs> it is. Trust me. Is it really? Okay. <laughs> Great. Um, there is a story you tell a lot, uh, and I first heard it when I was a camper uh, in high school at your uh, your broadcasting camp about your, your boxing story when um, you – had never done boxing, you had never seen boxing, you had never been to a fight, and you said you had and you could, and you went and broadcast a, a series of boxing matches, and it went fine. Um, the The thing I want to touch on, though, with that is the reason you've said it went well is you were prepared, and you were as prepared as could possibly be, and, and you had done the homework on it and were confident in it. I've done a. I've never done boxing, but I've done a handful of things that I didn't know what I was talking about before I got into them. 
Um, and even if I feel prepared, I, I always feel like I still go into them with a little bit of a sense of nakedness. And like I, I broadcast CrossFit two years ago. I do CrossFit. And even broadcasting that, I still felt a little bit vulnerable. Um, doing wrestling, the, first, the, the very first time I ever did wrestling, I will never forget it. I turned to my analyst, and I'm watching this one guy, I don't remember what it was, but do this one thing in a match. And I turned to him and I said, Eric, what's Johnson doing here? And Eric looked at me and goes, nothing. And, and I was like, well, that didn't go well. Uh, how, like, how do you get yourself into a situation there where, where you can, as best you can, eliminate that naked feeling and, and stay out of traps where you could expose yourself? Yeah, I, I think probably the, the back end of the question, you nailed it. Uh, I do think you're you're trying to avoid a little bit and not go into the deep end without having the confidence to actually swim. I do think there's a pride that comes into this. If you get assigned something that is not considered uh, part of your normal purview, uh, you do have to go and dig a little deeper. And it's almost those books that used to be bestsellers, baseball for dummies or basketball (laughs) for dummies. You just start from square one. And that's what I did with boxing. I was a fan. So I had a working knowledge track and field I got tossed into and I ended up doing eight straight NCAA division one outdoor championships, having never attended a track meet prior to the first one that I went to and called on that first day in Austin, Texas, uh, golf. I'm not a golfer. I don't golf. I, I just have never been into it yet. I was asked by CBS to call amen corner at the masters And I know for most broadcasters, that would be considered the pinnacle, Mm. a chance to go to Augusta and experience that championship. And for me, I just looked at it as this is a new assignment and certainly it's a challenge, but I've got to learn the nomenclature. I've got to learn the cadence. I've certainly watched enough golf to understand it. I understand the sport, uh, but I certainly was not an expert tennis. I played as a kid, I played competitively. So when I started getting some opportunities in that world, uh, there was definitely more of a familiarity with the sport. And I felt more comfortable than maybe the other three that I just mentioned, but it doesn't matter when you're sitting next to John McEnroe, similar to your wrestling story. If you start posing questions his way, you better be confident that you're leading him in the right direction. Be a lawyer. Yeah. So uh, for me, I remember very vividly uh, French Open. They told me I'm going to be working with with John McEnroe. And the match that we were assigned that day was Rafael Nadal, as we know, a machine on the clay. And he's playing a French wild card. And I had never heard of the guy. He he was probably a local pro in Paris. And he got a chance to play in the French Open. His name was Nicolas Delvilde. So the entire day I'm practicing the pronunciation. I asked a couple of people on the grounds, how would you say this? And they said, well, is Nicola Del Verde? <laughs> As if I was like, like a question mark at the end. Like, no, 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 Del Verde, Del Verde. 
So the whole day I'm practicing del del day, del del day. And I'm waiting to go on the air. John is notorious for getting to the broadcast booth minutes before you actually go on the air. We don't know where he comes from, but like a Tasmanian devil, he comes walking in. And on this day, same deal. He's got a Knicks hat that's sideways on his head. We're two minutes from air. And he walks in. I'm hey, John, how are you doing? He's like, hey. I said, all right, John, we got uh, Rafael Nadal against Nicolas Delvilde. And he says, what? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, a French wild card. Uh, Nicolas Delvilde? He says, no, 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 no. Nicholas DeVilder. <laughs> I go, no, no, no. I, I, I talked to a guy locally. He said, it's a Nicolas Delvilde? He goes, well, not today, because today he's Nicholas DeVilder. They're like, 10 seconds. I go, all right, uh, Nicholas DeVilder. That's what we'll go with. And he lost like two, three, and two. It was over in an hour and 22 minutes. But the point being, in that moment, what am I going to do? Argue with John McEnroe or I'm going to be on his team? And I was on his team. And that day, uh, that was exactly what we were going to call Nicolas Delville Day. I feel, I feel like you, 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 that's the name that stuck with you. Oh, very much so. <laughs> I never called another match of his. I don't even know if he ever played in another Grand Slam match. I just know on that day, I could not get that out of my head. The entire day, I was so concerned with the pronunciation. And I'm working with the great John McEnroe, who was, by the way, terrific to work with. A great partner, obviously tremendous on the air, uh, one of the best to ever do it, and really easy to work with. That That's the irony, is that you would think, oh, it's going to be really tough. He ended up being really easy. If you're prepared... Uh, if you're uh, certainly aware of your role, it's not my job to interview John McEnroe. And that's what I quickly realized. That's not why we're there. I'm not going to just pepper him with question after question after question. If anything, I'm going to tag what he has to say. I'm going to give him ample room to get his points in. And occasionally, if I can counterpunch, if I can crack a joke, then everybody walks away happy. And it was really an easy broadcast because he was easy to work with. But the thing that stuck in my mind is don't blow the pronunciation. And I realized that was not the priority for John. Uh, just uh, for those at home, um, he lost in the 2012 French Open to uh, Djokovic and uh, reached his highest 60th in the world by the time it was all said and done. There you go. So, all right. So uh, this guy had a real career. <laughs> um, would you say to John McEnroe, like, and I don't know where, you, where you're at with tennis at this point, but like, would, do you look at a guy like that and say, hey, never done tennis before, um, you know? kind of lay out lay it all out there or do you want to make it hey no i need this guy to to think i know what i'm talking about uh it's funny yeah i had worked with him for cbs prior to the french open at the u.s open and (laughs) it was a year in which rain had really affected play so they actually had to toss some of the bigger matches onto either side courts or the grandstand court. And normally John would just work uh, at Arthur Ashe. And I would never even see him. I wasn't matched up with John in those situations. I was usually covering the secondary matches. But because rain had affected play, I'm just sitting over at grandstand. The producer hits my headset. He says, hey, uh, Ian, stand by here. We're going to come to you in uh, one minute. 
I said, oh, really? Who am I working with? He goes, you're working with McEnroe. And I said, okay, great. And I hit the talk. I go, Patrick? Because I had worked with Patrick. He goes, no, John. I was like, oh. And I realized at this point I had never met John. I'd never met him. He had never been to a production meeting. That's just not his thing. I had ball boyed for a John McEnroe match in Forest Hills when I was 13 years old. That's the closest I had come to John McEnroe. And again, similar situation to the French Open, about 35 seconds before we're going on the air, he walks into the booth. I turn around. I go, hey, John, I knew you. He goes, yeah, I know who you are. You do the nets. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So he's like, okay, then we're into it. And we start this match. I think it was Robbie Ginepri, if I remember correctly, one of the years that he made a, a pretty deep run in the U.S. Open. And we start this match, and 90 seconds into the match, he starts talking about the Nets and the Knicks. And the producer hits the headset. He goes, nobody cares about this. <laughs> John cared. And I realized if John cared, then I cared. So, we, you know, we talked about the Nets and Knicks for about 25 seconds, and we moved back to the tennis. Then they had a shot at the time. It was still at Shea Stadium coming out of a break, and he started talking about the Mets. Well, I was very comfortable talking about the Mets, so we talked about that. Again, the producer was like, guys, 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 we're doing Ginepri. So I realized that he just wanted to have fun. Right. And, uh, yeah, I never had the chance to even tell him, uh, hey, by the way, I really haven't done tennis, so uh, hey, just uh, keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, we just let it rip. Okay. Um, I feel like we've covered some ground here, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> and and, and I, I, I feel like anything I've left out here, I feel like when you have Iron Eagle on, you need to make sure you get your... You know what? I, I do want to make one point, Joel, yes. because we've known each other how many years? What year did you attend the broadcast oh, camp? Uh, the second year it existed. I was I was 16, maybe. So we've known each other in some way, shape, or form for 16 years. Okay. And one thing I do remember from that camp, I believe it was a Ranger game, maybe. Did you call a Ranger game off of the big screen as yes, a little play-by-play -play demo? Yep. There you go. Okay. So that, that I do remember. Here's the thing. 16 years of friendship. And look, I've lived with this my whole life, people butchering my name. <laughs> Is it Ian? Is it Ian? You know, I get every which angle. I've been called Eon. I've been called Jan Martina Navratilova on the air for an entire year at the French Open. And Martina is the best. She is great. And we are legitimate friends. But she called me Jan for an entire year doing the French Open every time she referred to me. So I've heard every possible option of my name. I had no idea that your name was Joel Godet. <laughs> is it Godet? It's Godet. It? Yeah, it's Godet. Joel Godet. Yeah, no, I thought you were Joel Got it forever. <laughs> I I I have to just come out and, and apologize to you. If, for... it, if it makes you feel better, the uh, the morning show host on uh, our flagship station in Muncie also has the same predicament and he brings it up every time I come on the air. So I I feel awful. <laughs> for sixteen years and I pride myself on pronunciations. I think I called you back maybe six months ago, and I got your message. It says, hey, uh, you've reached Joel Godet. I'm like, who's that? <laughs> what? Did he change his name? What is going on? What's so, funny, I'm like... That's on me. I, you know, we always get angry at athletes when you say, 
is your name pronounced this way? And they go, yeah, that works. And I'm like, no, 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 no. How is it pronounced? And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm the guy that goes, yeah, that works. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I tend to not correct people that say Ian, mm. unless it's something that uh, someone's doing on purpose and I can sense it, that they're trying to get to me. And then maybe I'll, I'll actually correct them. But I went through that uh, when the Nets went to the finals the first year they played the Lakers and the Nets center was Todd McCullough. Great guy from Canada. Uh, really turned out to be a good pro injuries, probably caught him on the back end and caught up to him. It's not McCullough, but, is it? Well, I mean, this is what I learned. We go <laughs> to dinner the night before game one of the NBA final. So the entire season, I went to him on media day. I said, Hey, Todd, great to meet you. I'm Ian Eagle. I said, how do you say your last name? He says, well, McCullough. I go, oh, okay. That's what I thought. And we're good. So the entire season, I call him McCullough. We go out to dinner. He ends up coming with me, Bill Raftery, and our producer, Frank DeGrace, and some other people on the crew. And he brings his dad with him to dinner. This is the night before he's going to go against Shaquille O'Neal in Los Angeles. <laughs> and he's hanging out having chicken parm with us. So I don't know, maybe an hour into the meal, his dad has had a few wines and he says, hey, uh, Ian, I got a bone to pick with you. I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah, you've been saying our name wrong the entire season. I said, what? I've been saying your name wrong. How do you say your name? He said, it's McCulloch. I said, it's McCulloch. I said, sir, I am so sorry. I actually went to your son on media day, asked him how to say your name. And he said, McCulloch. And his dad said, well, he doesn't know. <laughs> That's on me. That's on me. Quite all right. <laughs> um, last question for you before we uh, before we end this, because I haven't lived in New York in a long time. This is the first time I heard your voice. Uh, it was not the Nets. Uh, are you still the voice of Models? No, oh. no, I had that. You got to go to Moe's was the thing. Yeah, I probably had that gig for fifteen years. Okay. I don't think you're going to be able to go to Moe's. I think they are they going they just, out. I think they just filed Chapter Eleven. Oh, that's ironic. Yeah. yeah. I'm so sorry to no. <laughs> to crush memories of your youth. It's terrible. That's where you still go in New York City when you need a hat or something. Yeah, and and my my go to saying, which uh, kept me on their payroll for an extended period of time, was "You gotta go to Moe's." It's the sound of my childhood. I and <laughs> thank you, sir. Joel, my pleasure. I've been waiting patiently at the phone for this call for many, many years, and I finally got it. I'm glad I could make that dream come true. Thanks, bud. That is Ian Eagle joining us here on Play by Playcast, and uh, Models is going out of business. I didn't know this. Like, this is crushing. I've been crushed by the end of this podcast. Filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy back on March 11th. It's going to close the remaining 100-plus stores that it has. Dang it. Gotta go to Moe's. Gotta go to Models. Oh, it was the... It was the... That was the thing. Models. It's a, it's a Northeast thing. So no wonder I've never seen a store since I left home. <laughs> but, yeah, that was like... You, that was the New York City... When, like when you needed gloves and it was cold out, you went to Models, or you needed to kill time before a Broadway show, you went and looked at the jerseys. That's a shame. Well, 
R.I.P. Models. Anyway, that does it for episode number 175 of PXP Cast. So pumped that we had Iron Eagle on this week. Take a time out. We're back next week. Please join us then. This has been Play by Playcast. The music is from Marshmallow. My name is Joel Gadet, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.